Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Come and listen to a story about a man named Jed, a poor mountaineer barely kept his habit fed. Then one day he was looking at some tube and saw that Florida had a lax attitude. About pills, that is. Hillbilly heroin, O.C. I'm a little bit punchy on this week in the CLE because I'm going to be on vacation next week. But before we go, we're going to talk about the Beverly Hillbillies theme song as part of a news story. It's the news podcast from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Chris Warnowski, Laura Johnson, and Jane Cahoon. Happy Friday, everybody. Happy Friday. And like I said, there'll be no episodes next week, which is kind of a shame because it looks like we've about tripled our audience over the last couple of months and like to keep that momentum going. Let's get started. Why did Ohio Health Director Dr. Amy Acton resign? This was a bombshell yesterday, Jane Cahoon, that this person that rose to national prominence just in three months, because three months ago, nobody knew who the hell she was, helped save countless Ohioans probably from getting sick and many from dying, uh, has been on the stage big time, and now she's walking off. What's going on? Yeah, this was a shocker. The way she explained it is that she had struggled this with this decision for, for a couple of months now. You know, she said the routine that she kept simply wasn't sustainable, getting up at four o'clock in the morning each day and, and staying up late, you know, being away from her family, et cetera. And she said she thinks we've reached a new phase here, like a natural shift, as she described it, that that makes it a good time for her to to refocus. So that's her explanation. But I think a lot of people have other theories about, you know, what what shoved her out the door. Yeah. And one of those is, I mean, look, look, the far right wing nuts that, you know, give me my liberty. I shouldn't have to wear a mask. All that crazy stuff that went on. They vilified her. I mean, they said vile things about her. They protested outside her house. But she doesn't seem to be the kind of person that would walk away from that because she seems so devoted to her job. I mean, she really feels that she's helping save Ohioans. And she doesn't seem like the kind of person that would let that kind of nonsense dissuade her or divert her from saving lives. Do you really think that that is part of what drove her away? Well, I have another question here. I've just been wondering... And I think a lot of people have, like, how has she felt about these reopenings that have occurred? Because plan took off to, to reopen before we reached certain milestones that we were supposed to reach. It's kind of hard for me to believe that she was okay with all of this. Well, stuff remember opening back up, even though some people would characterize it as slow, but you know. But- but remember, when DeWine came out to make kind of a surprise announcement about the reopening, she didn't show up at the briefing that day. And it was kind of awkward explanations about it. And you're right. All the way up until the point where DeWine started this much faster reopening, 
she kept saying, we have to go about this slowly. We don't want a, a, a second surge. Uh, you know, we, we need to be measured. And then Mike DeWine just seemed to get it in his head. Okay, we're, we're ready. Let's, let's get going. And like I said, she wasn't there for the beginning of that. She hasn't talked a lot about it. Like she hasn't, you haven't heard her endorse the reopening when he's announced these things and say, Oh, governor, I think you're on the right track. You know, she's talked about protecting ourselves and wearing masks. So maybe she's looking down the road at the fall thinking, okay, we're going to have a massive second surge. I'm not getting blamed for that. That's on these guys. I'm going to skedaddle. If I were her and I had worked tirelessly day and night and pleaded with Ohioans to do all these things, which they did. And, and really prevented the rapid spread of this and kept the case numbers down, I might be feeling like, hey, I don't want to be part of this, you know, where it all goes down the toilet, you know? Yeah, I, I look, we, we met her when she came in to see us before this all blew up. It was right at the very beginning in early March, and we were all impressed with her. She, she is somebody that clearly was devoted to helping save lives. I mean, that's that's about as noble a a job as you can do. And because DeWine listened to her at the very outset, he was one of the first governors, if not the first governor to shut schools and close things down. You really can say she saved people. I mean, we were headed to a much different surge. Now the naysayers say, no, we weren't. No, we weren't. That was all made up and (laughs) look at the numbers. But, but I I think it's pretty clear that that her advice to Mike DeWine and Mike DeWine being smart enough to listen, protected Ohioans in a big way. It's why we're not, we didn't get hit with that massive surge that overran our hospitals as we're seeing right now in some other States that didn't seem to take the precautions the same way. I do think it was pretty vile that that people made the personal attacks and you know there was right. even some even people in the legislature okay right not, not right. just people out there on the streets protesting people in the legislature who tried to curb her powers and said some pretty ugly things on social media as well and there was anti-semitism yeah. and it was i mean it's really a shame that when it came time to having a philosophical disagreement about the direction the state was in that you would take personal attacks at her when she's just you know, she's a bureaucrat doing her job and doing it, doing it well. What happens next? She's staying in the administration. Yeah, I wanted to mention that uh, apparently Governor DeWine still does value her advice because she's now going to be his chief health advisor. What that means, I don't know. You know, I I suspect we're not going to be seeing her at the briefings at all anymore, but but who knows? Uh, they, They have named a guy who is the general counsel for the health department, Lance Himes, a um, as the interim director, a job he's he's done before. I don't know what the long term term plan is, but but that's the that's a short term plan for now. Her stepping down was a national news story. It was covered by everybody because mm-hmm. she was somebody that took the national stage. So I think that she could punch her ticket and do whatever she wants. She seems like she's bent more on being a scientist than being a public figure. Do you think we'll see her? on any kind of prominent stage in the future? I think so. I mean, she, I mean, remember the, the New York times like did a video breaking down her, you know, hand gestures and her language to, to show like what she uses the, because she's such a great communicator and, 
Yeah, I, I think she's got the stuff. And, but she doesn't and, like it. She doesn't. I mean, she <laughs> did, she didn't seem comfortable with the attacks on her. I mean, come on, they showed her in force outside her house. Page. I just, you know, I just meant in another prominent position. But you know, it's funny. A couple of times, or more than once, she has said. I'm just an ordinary person during an extraordinary time. And I thought that really summed it up well. She she hasn't sought the spotlight and she ended up in the middle of this pandemic with the most important job. And I gotta go say, I'm gonna miss her. I mean, I really yeah. I liked her. I thought she was at at heart a really good person who did good things. And it's been a kind of a pleasant three months to uh to spend time with her at Wine with the Wine. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why is the Beverly Hillbillies theme song a key element in the big opioid lawsuits being handled in Cleveland? I have to say, Chris Ranowski, I laughed out loud when I saw this story. So we have to talk about it. Yeah, this was strange. John Coniglia found a filing. If you remember, Cuyahoga and Summit counties have already settled their lawsuits with many of these opioid distributors. But they, they they filed something additional with the court claiming that um, one of the companies, Amerisource Bergen, had declined or didn't file a bunch of evidence during what is known as the discovery phase of the trial, which is when they have to share evidence basically and show like, here's what we have and what we're going to use at trial. And one of the pieces of evidence was this communication between these two people in, with, in, in the company and one of them was a parody of the theme song of the 1960s hit television show, The Beverly Hillbillies. And 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 so this came up in a different case. And so I believe the county was like, wait, why didn't we get this evidence? So the attorneys for the county started digging around and they go, well, there's a bunch of stuff they didn't give us. And they're now asking Judge Dan Polster, who's overseeing these lawsuits, to, to maybe see if, if there's you know, some sort of sanction that they can do against the attorneys for foregoing their responsibility of handing over evidence. Or maybe they get more money. The thing is, this theme song parody is on point because it shows that the people at this drug company were aware that that Florida was a pill mill. That, right. So that there was an abuse of their drugs. And I mean, and they're making jokes about it. It's just, it's not a good look for the, the, for the drug company. A jury, I think, would have, would have taken that into consideration, right? Right. So, you know, part of the, for people who haven't been following this, it, it, a little bit of background, you know, they consolidated hundreds of of these opioid cases in Cleveland under one judge. They they call this multi-district litigation. It's a like when you have claims that that are similar in hundreds of different cases, they sort of consolidate everything under one judge and into one thing so they can sort of speed this through the the courts. And one of the big allegations throughout this this entire opioid mess is that the companies marketed these pills in a way that that downplayed their addictive nature, but they knew that they were being misleading. And this is sort of evidence of that, that right. they understood that there was a problem. And, it, and so much so that they were making about jokes about it. Right. right. And so, so I look, I, I, one, I good for the County in figuring this out. Uh, good for the lawyers who found it. And, and maybe it'll be a bigger settlement. Uh, we, 
obviously need it. We talked yesterday about how May may set the all-time record for overdose deaths, but but the arrogance of the, the drug company people to make that kind of thing and circulate it, it just shows they knew exactly what was going on. Good stuff. Good find by John Coniglia. Yeah, really You're good. listening to This Week in the CLE. Why is Cleveland Mayor Frank Jackson opposed to defunding the police? Defunding the police has become a big, big talking point in the aftermath of the protests over the death of George Floyd. There are people that believe we should take some money from the police and put it into dealing with social ills and social justice issues. Uh, This week, Frank Jackson came out and said he disagrees with this. Laura Johnston, what's his theory and philosophy? Yeah, he spoke in response to Councilman Bashir Jones's idea, and he said it won't work. He called it completely unrealistic. He said, if you divert money for to social services, you'll still need police to provide for health, safety, and welfare of residents. And so he, he just said, no, it's not, not going to happen. Yeah, which is odd to me, because for Frank Jackson... Those social justice issues and dealing with the root causes of poverty for which he often says crime is a symptom Mm -hmm. is part of his mantra. And so I get that, you know, he believes that the police department needs to be a certain size to deal with crime. But I'm surprised he did not say, look, I agree we should be investing in these very things, even if he doesn't want to take money from the police. He just came out and said, no, 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 no. And he, you know, he's also come out and said, I, I want to get every looter and rioter and charge them with a crime when he's the same guy that always says, look, the people that commit crimes are doing it because it's a symptom of poverty. So not the take that I was expecting from him. He did say he's in support of promoting social justice. I mean, but he just said there has to be leveraging to get the right outcome. And I think we've talked about this before with DeWine, my um, Governor Mike DeWine, the idea of defunding the police is this kind of misnomer almost. And so the automatic response of a lot of politicians has just been no. It, it's it's more of a nuanced thing, but it doesn't sound nuanced. No, but, but the push here is having police respond to mental health crises mm-hmm. is is not the way to deal with it. I mean, yes, they've gotten the training now, and so they don't kill people who are doing it. We hope, but but it's not the way to to deal with the problem. And that when you're investing more than half of your budget in public safety, maybe you should think about some part of that to try and get at the root causes, so that the police are called less often. I, that what struck me, and I haven't talked to him. But it just struck me that he he wasn't more open to that because he's the kind of guy, I think, who who generally thinks that way. And I mean, it's been part of who he is. So just a little bit of a surprise that he was so dead set against it because we keep getting hung up, like you said, on this defunding the police, getting rid of the police. When this really is more of a conversation about societal priorities for municipal budgets And that's a good conversation. And we're not having it because everybody keeps saying, I don't want to get rid of the police. Well, it's this is Chris Wernowski. Part of what I think is it it going on here is that, you know, we're in our fifth year of a very massive, very expensive reform effort that we that the city voluntarily agreed to enter into after, you know, decades of bad policing in Cleveland. And and so 
and, and I can't speak for him, but I think the idea of, of maybe after all this effort and, and time and money and training and resource giving and, you know, to say now, you know, let's defund all that, I think would, I don't know if that would seem like a, a loss or. All right. All right. All right. But, 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 but let me push back. Mm-hmm. Okay. Forget that. So you're the mayor mm-hmm. and this issue comes up and you don't want to take money away from the police because of everything you just said, how mm-hmm. much work was done to get here, but you do want society to focus on these root causes. I, this was a chance for Frank Jackson to say, yes, we need to do all the things people are talking about. We should be talking about how to reorient some of our budget priorities to do just that. The county has a lot of the taxes that go into that. We should be having this conversation. He didn't do that. He shut it down. And that, that's, that's what surprises me because that conversation is a good conversation. We, we should always be reassessing our priorities. And look, let's, let's face it, nothing we've done is working, right? Poverty is still worse than it ever was. We still have a huge divide between black and white, rich and poor. This is a healthy conversation to have. He's the top elected leader of the region, and he shut it down. That, that's my, that was my surprise. And we'll see. I mean, you know, there are, there are communities that are leaning into this a lot harder than we are. And, you know, it will take time and, you know, some distance between now and then to, to see if, if, if this experiment is effective or not. But, you know, this, you know, like you and I talked yesterday, I, 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 you know, I felt like this was, I feel like he has like a very small window to, to do something really bold and, and maybe try to sort of reinvent how we look at things. I mean, you right, know, and we're not. Early childhood education would probably do right. more to affect the future of this city than you know adding to the police budget and and training and doing things like community policing. I mean, just just small things like that. I mean, they're expensive, but you know, think of but what you can't. Give you can't all families in the city would do, or you know, something really bold. Right, like but you can't do it unless you start. The conversation. And in Cleveland, we're just not having it, except on this podcast. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Is Ohio expanding coronavirus testing to anyone who wants a test? The, The coronavirus testing has been a story for three months. It's been very hard to get one in the beginning. Uh, the, the, it's eased up a little bit. Drugstores are making it easier and easier. On uh, Thursday, Governor Mike DeWine announced it was going to be much easier. Jane Cahoon, what did he say? He said that anyone in Ohio who wants a test can now get one. It, they used to be reserved for people like healthcare professionals, sick people, and first responders. But now he said we've successfully built out our testing capacity enough so that anybody who wants one can get one. They're going to have, as you said, drugstores, you know, like CVS and Rite Aid are, are offering them. And then the state is working with community health centers to to set up some uh, pop-up testing sites around the state, and they're going to post those on the website. Now, they're not suggesting that we all go in and get tested, right? I mean, you still should have some suspicion that you have it, right? This isn't an antibody test we're talking no, about. No, I mean, all this test is going to tell you, do I have the coronavirus right now? Not right. whether I had it yesterday or two weeks ago or I'm going to get it next week. So that's, that's all it will tell you. And as we've discussed before, 
that unless you're really, really sick and need to be hospitalized, there's not a lot they can do for you anyway. Although if you knew you had it and you healed up from it, you would feel a little bit safer going out in public and not worrying about it. And that's the one benefit is is if you get sick and you think you have it and you get tested and it's positive, it's like, okay, I'll be sick. Hope I get better. And, and then, you have to stay away from other people. Right, 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 and wear your mask. But, but that, the one thing is you would, you would have, I mean, it's pretty clear you have at least a temporary immunity to it, six months, a year, and maybe longer. So there's a benefit to that. But hopefully uh, the people on this podcast will wear their masks and not need to get tested mm-hmm. this week in the CLE. What will it take to bring diversity to police departments so that they look like the communities they serve? This is one of the major cruxes of the problem that America is dealing with right now. In many cities, police can feel like an occupying force. They haven't come from the neighborhoods they police. They don't look like the neighborhoods they police. Chris Ranowski, what's the latest on this? So um, Evan McDonald has actually done a couple of very good stories sort of poking into the idea of diversity problems with Cleveland Police Department. Um, He had um, a really great story last week at an event that the Black Shield, which is a a subsection of the uh, police union that is 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 African-American black officers. And in that discussion, they talked about you know, some of the challenges that they face from their friends and their family and when they make the decision to become police officers. Some of them said, you know, I lose, you know, I've lost friends. My family, you know, thinks it's wrong that I became a police officer. And and what that sort of reveals is, you know, lingering mistrust in black communities towards police departments after, you know, decades of mistreatment and, 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 and over-policing and, and things like that. Um, as a follow-up to that, he published a story yesterday that, that talked about, you know, some of the, the challenges they have in, in getting, you know, black Cleveland residents and, and people in this community to, to, to join up with the force. And, and what a problem that is for departments that really don't reflect the communities that they police. I mean, this was, you know, this was an issue that the Justice Department raised in its report, you know, years ago, you know, five, six years ago when, you know, we first started talking about, quote unquote, police reform, that, you know, that police departments shouldn't resemble occupying forces and that, you know, that what one of the ways that the city could correct that problem was to to actually recruit more African-Americans and people of color to to serve on the force. And more so women. how do you do, so how do you do that, though? I mean, that's that's been a goal forever. Uh, you know, there were accusations 20 years ago that Cleveland was cooking its test to to favor minority candidates. There were lawsuits and hearings. It's a hard thing to do if you have people that generally distrust the police to want to be the police. Is there anybody having success at this? I think the the way that it happens is, it, you know, and this is what the, the police experts and the people that Evan spoke to believe, which is you you really have to I mean, it, part of it is is public relations that it's that and, you know, getting out in the community and saying, like, you know, this is a respectable job and this is something that, you know, you want to do. And and there's good that you can do. You know, I, I saw in the in the thick of of all of the demonstrations, there was a video that was circulating on a Twitter, I think, where there was a black officer talking to a group of young black men and 
in his response to them when when they were saying like why don't you join us why are you standing over there with the police and he said imagine what would happen if I wasn't here. Like imagine what this department would be like if people like me weren't here. And I think that's important. You know, we, we talked right. about this earlier that there's a, there's a movement to defund or, you know, and I've seen abolishing police and it's like, okay, you know, we're never, we're not going to make that leap very quickly. And we're going to, we're still going to have cops for a while. And, and, and so the prevailing. Or, or, or permanently. Of, I mean, I, right. the idea of not having police, that doesn't, just, right. Uh, but, but, the, but the sense is, is, is that, you know, and, and the black shield people brought this up, you know, they talk about, they talked about the racism that they undergo within the department among their ranks. And, and you have to yeah. wonder what, what would go on if they weren't there. If they weren't and, there, it'd be worse. Right. right. I should and, point out, since we're talking about an agency that doesn't reflect its community, they're dealing with the same challenges that journalism is. We don't reflect the community either. And we're working right. hard to change that. I know how, how challenging that could be. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What threat did the town of Olmsted Falls make to the people who organized a peaceful protest there? Communist Leila Tassi wrote about Chagrin Falls a week ago because they boarded up their stores before a protest, which came across as a little bit hostile. But Olmsted Falls, Laura Johnston, actually took this a big step further. What did they do? This is mind-boggling. They implied that two young activists, 19-year-olds who have lived their entire lives in Olmsted Falls, who wanted to put on a a peaceful protest, might actually have to pay the cost of police at that protest up to $5,000. They got the support of a councilwoman, and she backs up their point of view, though the city says they never intended to make the woman pay. But everybody was involved in this. In a Facebook post, the mayor said he was relieved that the protest was peaceful in contrast to downtown demonstrations. But he didn't say anything about the cause underlying the protest. He didn't align himself with the Black Lives Matter message. He just focused on the potential threat of outside agitators and, quote, the large monetary cost in keeping everyone safe. This is just well, he also <laughs> he also threatened the councilwoman with having right. to pay the cost of security, which is preposterous. But I mean, it's just this one you're you're looking at it scratching your head. It's just it's com- it just completely missing the point. Right. One trying to charge people because they were going to have a protest, which is pretty much protected in the U.S. Constitution, uh, and two, not addressing this. This issue that has all the passion of his constituents, it's just, you know, it makes Chagrin Falls, what happened in Chagrin Falls, look mild in comparison. And the underlying question is, why $5,000? You know, this was a peaceful protest. It wasn't in the streets. They didn't have to close down streets. I think they had about, I could be wrong here, but, you know, a couple hundred people. And so they didn't have to have police out in shields and gas masks. They could have just had some friendly neighborhood cops, you know, I. Well, that is, I mean, we're seeing that over and over right. again, which which gets at the heart of what this protest is about. The police are a militarized occupying force that don't deal with people like human beings. It was a terrible look. We saw the same thing in Brexville this week. They had an angry protest there. It didn't break down. It stayed peaceful, but it was police and militarized look standing in front of everybody. There are many police in the area that just aren't getting 
what this is about. But and I, and I get that they want to be prepared, right? But I do think that the response that Layla saw from the residents were that they felt the same way that she did, that they were incensed. Um, they ex- excoriated that mayor on Facebook for completely missing the point. So, and, and the protest was well attended. So it seems like the people of Olmstead Falls share this desire to end police brutality and exercise their rights to say that. Okay, this week in the CLE, why does the Ohio Legislative Black Caucus say legislators need training on racial equity and bias? Jane Cahoon, this comes about because of something that boggles the mind. Lay it on us. Okay, we now have the poster child for for the case that the Black Caucus is trying to make, and his name is Steve Huffman. He's a Republican senator from the Dayton area who this week during a health committee meeting, used ignorant and racist language. This was the health committee, and they were discussing a resolution to declare racism a public health crisis. And he was questioning Angela Dawson, the the executive director of the Ohio Commission on Minority Health. And he was talking about the coronavirus and how it disproportionately affects African-Americans. And this was the language he used. He said, the colored population was more susceptible to the coronavirus. And was that because they didn't wash their hands as well as other groups? So one, he's using language that's just completely inappropriate. And two, he's asking a question that's just patently ridiculous. This guy's an elected legislator. And he's a doctor. Yes, that's correct. Uh, And he was fired from his job as an emergency room doctor by the contractor that employs him, which led people like Stephanie House, the head of the Black Caucus, to wonder like, okay, he's fired from his job, but they're letting him continue as vice chairman of the health committee. You know, what's wrong with this? And does he have anything to say? I mean, has he, 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 he said, oh, At first, he said, you know, geez, I phrased this question in an intentionally awkward way. And then he later posted, I guess, what amounted to an apology on on Facebook, where he said, you know, he didn't intend to hurt anybody. And, you know, he hopes that he can learn from this, et cetera. But actually, um, I don't. We haven't heard anything from the leadership, you know, like Larry Abhoff, the Senate president. I I don't think we've heard from him yet. I I don't think there's anything you can say. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, it's not it's not just you can't say I had a slip of the tongue. I I mean, his whole the whole premise of his question was was racist. It's just how can okay. I mean? Is it's anybody really, calling for him to resign? Is uh, yes, the Ohio Legislative Black Caucus Foundation and the ACLU think he should just resign from the legislature. And as I said, Stephanie House pointed out, like you know, why is he why is he still in this leadership position on the health committee? And the Black Caucus is calling for training on implicit bias and and racial equality. I mean, it, it's something that just seems long overdue, but, but they haven't been listened to. I mean, I've been around for a long time, and I remember 
when I believe it was Stephanie House, got gaveled down when she tried to speak on the House floor, I think against a like a stand your ground bill or something, trying to make the point of how it affected her community and saying, you don't want to talk about race. And she got gaveled down. And then you have like Amelia Sykes, the minority leader who was profiled at the state house, you know, by the security because yeah, they kept, she didn't belong there. They kept searching so, her and, you know, but you know, this has another ramification that's disturbing. I heard from people outside of Ohio who saw the stories about this and sent it to me like, this is what, rep- this is who represents you in Ohio. And I had to explain, you know, there's really two Ohio's there's urban Ohio, there's rural Ohio, urban Ohio, people are much more advanced than they're thinking. And they talk about ways to tackle problems of racial equity. And then there's urban Ohio or rural Ohio, which is like the deep South, but it's a bad image for Ohio to have somebody getting national attention for saying things that are so offensive. It makes Ohio look like one big racist state. And it's just, it's, it's one of those where Laura, I'll bring it up again. We need to have the Northern part of the state secede. Because <laughs> no, I, I don't want this guy representing me. The in state any of Western Reserve. Right, this guy. I have a little postscript here. Last night, the House GOP voted down an amendment that Democratic State Rep Juanita Brent of Cleveland had proposed to ban the sale of Confederate memorabilia at county fairs. And she said, guys, you know, if the Confederacy still existed, I wouldn't even be considered a human being. I'd be somebody's slave. And and they just they voted it. Down. So, so right. NASCAR then, has gotten rid of the Confederate flag, but Ohio is going to. Right. They said it's a freedom of speech issue. And then but the Ohio State Fair hasn't had it for like five years. Like they've banned them. So it's like if the State Fair of Ohio right. can do it, pretty sure the county fairs can do it, too. Look, look, Chris, you and I both lived in Florida and you know that they will never get rid of the Confederate flag down there. But I never thought I would live in a northern state that would be less progressive than NASCAR. Like that's (laughs) (laughs) all right. Why? Got to leave it there, guys. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Okay, well, this is our last episode for a week. I am sure you will miss getting up every morning to have this conversation. Thank you for the conversation, Chris. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Laura. Thanks, everybody, for listening. This week in the CLE will return on June 22nd. <laughs>